Well, good morning. Pastor Jeff asked me to, uh, <coughs> to give the message this morning. Um, I'd been uh, studying the spiritual disciplines for a few years, and he thought it would be good to kind of let this be a, a new year kind of kickoff and, and an encouragement in, in the spiritual disciplines. And so the message today has to do with uh, kind of prioritizing and, and getting into the practice of the spiritual disciplines. The end of the year is a good time to reflect back on the year, um, good and bad, and evaluating your life, areas I need to improve, or rejoicing in, in victories that God has granted. So that's where we are right now at the end of the year, but we're also at the beginning of a new year, and that's a great time to look forward to say, how can I improve, um, and what needs to keep happening, and maybe to evaluate your life. A lot of times people take this opportunity to maybe devote themselves to a, a healthier eating or uh, regimen, or maybe an exercise routine. And I would just encourage you and challenge you, this message is designed to help you to add spiritual disciplines to that mindset. As you look ahead, as you plan your year, as you think about what you'd like to grow in, um, I would encourage you to, to, to really think about spiritual disciplines. And I want to be careful not to motivate with guilt, because A, it doesn't work, and B, it's, it's actually sinful. That's um, not a, a godly motivation. The motivation is grace and God's grace. And so I hope to convey that. If you feel guilty at the end of the message, I either misspoke or you misheard me. Um, each one is possible. Um, and I'm willing to, uh, to discuss that afterwards. So my goal is not guilt at all. My, go my goal is encouragement and a healthy motivation with the gospel of God's grace um, as a proper encouragement. Um, we do live in an evil world. If you read the news, you can get discouraged real fast. Um, just, I mean, you, I just read the news yesterday in preparation for this introduction. And headline news, our economy is about to collapse. Oh, great. <laughs> All right. Well, what's the Christian supposed to do? Well, this message applies to that. Um, I also read about Hobby Lobby. Maybe you guys don't know this, but um, I believe it's run by a Christian. Um, it's a Christian-run business, and they don't want to pay for their employees to get abortions, and so they're resisting the health care mandate. And starting January, now they've sued to try to get out of it for religious convictions, but the courts don't act as fast as the calendar, and starting January 1st, they're going to be fined, according to this article that I read, a million dollars a day until they find themselves in compliance with the new law. What is a Christian supposed to do? <laughs> um, are we supposed to fight for new laws and for for, you know, we're supposed to argue for better economic principles? Yes, but first and more deeply than that, we're supposed to train ourselves for godliness. That comes first, and out of that comes interaction in the public sphere, promoting the Christian worldview with eloquence and such. But underneath that comes a deeper principle of your personal walk with God. This world doesn't need more laws and better understanding of economy, although that would help. What it needs is the gospel, and what it needs is for Christians to live according to that gospel. And this message today is designed to help you, to motivate you personally to live in this wicked world in such a way that will um, promote godliness in your life and in your surroundings. Um, Paul, writing to Timothy, was in an equally wicked world. If, we were to, if Paul were to be here with us today and we were to say, Paul, did you see this in the news? He'd probably say, yeah, so? I mean, 
I, I was in the Roman Empire. I mean, you think you're more wicked than I? No. What we see today is been throughout history. It's just a different expression of human sinfulness. Same in Paul under the Roman Empire. Same with the Israelites and the pagan nations surrounding them. We live in a wicked world. So Paul's words to Timothy in that context of a wicked world apply to us very much so in the context of our wicked world that's still falling apart ever since Adam and Eve fell. And so we can find encouragement in Paul's words to Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Timothy. We're going to spend some time in 1 Timothy looking to see what Paul tells Timothy in the midst of his own context. Timothy is at Ephesus. He's, he's been commissioned by Paul to help the church there to fight off some false teaching. And again, our world is filled with false teaching. In churches all around, there's false teaching. It tries to creep into the church, and we have to fight against it. And so Paul's telling Timothy, fight against the false teaching, teach what is true. And this whole letter of 1 Timothy is in this context of fighting false teaching. And he's encouraging it and fighting the wickedness of the world that's being expressed through false teaching in his particular context. So as we read Paul's words to Timothy, again, they apply very much to us today. The context, the passage I'm going to read is 1 Timothy 4, but I'm going to start in chapter 1 to kind of give a little bit of a context and just to show what Timothy is up against. The, um, there are people that were teaching false doctrine. If you see in verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So his job is to teach truth and to make sure that nobody is infiltrating the truth in the church with false doctrine. Simple enough on the surface. And he goes on to say that these people, um, they have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So there's all these discussions that are floating around, and it's, it's all vanity. And Paul's saying, don't get caught up in that. Teach the truth. And, and reject the, the falsehood, but spend your time and your focus teaching the truth. And so, do we need to interact in the public sphere? Yes. But Paul is telling Timothy, as a minister of the gospel, spend your time teaching sound doctrine. And out of that, those are the things that are good and necessary in their place. But we've got to get first things first here. And so, Paul is teaching Timothy to teach the people sound doctrine. And if you skip ahead to chapter 4... He talks a little bit about their false teaching. Um, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it because his point is teach the truth. And in the refuting error, he, he mentions it, but then he kind of passes it by and says, just teach sound doctrine, and the, the, the falsehood will be clear when it comes up. And so, he's, again, he's talking about these, this false teaching. It says in verses 1 and 2, um, they, they're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. And so into this context, he talks to Timothy. Very evil world, false teaching creeping into the church. And he says, stand firm, and this is what you do. And so that's what the message is for us today. This is what you do. Let me pray um, before I read um, the main text for this morning. Um, dear Father, again, I just ask that you would um, come in power through your spirit. As, as I speak the word, 
and meditate upon what it is to train ourselves in godliness. Um, I pray that we would be properly motivated to pursue you and to enjoy the life that you have bought for us. And I pray that you would um, fight off legalism and fight off laziness, that you would help us to walk that straight and narrow path of truth and joy. I pray for the hearers that they would listen well and that I would speak well. In Jesus' name, amen. So <clears throat> here in verse 6 through 8, it says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Um, when he says these things there at the top, he's talking about what has come before. He's talking about the sound doctrine. Put these things, the sound doctrine before the brothers. That's what you need to do, Timothy. So the world's falling apart around you. Teach truth. That's the most important thing. You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Now, the Bible talks this way about the faith. When it says the faith and the good doctrine, that means that there is a body of doctrine and truth that Christianity is composed of. And to go outside of that means you're not teaching truth. You're teaching falsehood. And so um, when it says that here that Timothy is being trained in the words of the faith, that means he's growing in his understanding of that body of doctrine, the good doctrine that he has followed. He's growing. He's learning. He's, he's studying. He's, he's meditating on Scripture. He's training himself in the faith. It has boundaries, and we need to stay in those boundaries. Um, Christianity is called a confessional religion. That means we have a confession of faith. We believe certain things, and if you teach something else, you are outside of Christianity. You're a false teacher. Um, and there's, you know, there's, there's room for disagreement, but, um, but that, that doesn't mean that boundary is as far as you want to take it. People make up truth all the time. We live in a culture where Truth is made up left and right. But the, the faith, the Christianity, the good doctrine has boundaries, and we need to stay in those boundaries. And Timothy needs to teach those to the people, to teach that good doctrine to the people. And he goes on to say, um, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. More literal, it's actually, he's saying old wives' tales. He's, he's saying things that these th they don't need to, you don't need to spend your time refuting these things. They are so absurd, you can just reject them and, and teach godliness. Train yourself for godliness. That's your focus. So don't spend all your time refuting every little heresy that comes out. Some need more attention than others, but the, the particular ones that Ephesus was facing, Paul says, look, just don't have anything to do with those. They're, they're not worth your time. Just train yourself in godliness. And, and later in the passage, we're not going to get into it, but he says, by your life, you will disprove that false teaching. And when you train yourself in godliness based on the good doctrine, your life itself will be the refutation of those falsehoods. So don't get caught up in that. Train yourself for godliness. So when we face the cultural ills of society, do we need to know how to interact? Yes, but deeper than that, we need to train ourselves for godliness and out of that interact with society. Because we can win a debate... <laughs> And if our lives don't match, 
we've lost the debate. <laughs> we've lost the argument. And that happens all the time. We talk about, you know, Christians protecting marriage. Really? <laughs> Have you seen the divorce rate lately? We, we undermine our argument by our lifestyle. Um, and so that's kind of the, the idea here. Instead of getting caught up in the debate, train yourself for godliness and by your life refute falsehood. Um, when he uh, uses the word, so the context is a wicked world. We've talked about that. The command here is to train yourself. This word train yourself or discipline yourself, it's an athletic term. It's the word from which we get the word gymnasium. <laughs> so he's saying, you could say, go to the spiritual gym and exercise. Just like you go to the Alaska club or you work out in your home, do that spiritually. Train yourself, exercise yourself, go to the gym, spiritually speaking, the godliness gym. Now we're going to talk about a little bit about what that means, but for now just... Just get that, 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 that word picture that he's using here. This is hard work. It's hard to be godly. It's hard to train yourself in godliness. <clears throat> no, no athlete or sport, no, no coach is going to say to their athletes, okay, guys, we really want to win this championship, so you work hard, and our first game is here, and we'll see you there. They don't do that. They set up practice times and schedules, and they, they have structure, and they run drills, and, and there's organization and, and training. And so Paul's saying the same thing. If you want to grow in godliness, you've got, you've got to train yourself. It's not going to happen automatically. You need to go to the gym, spiritually speaking. Maybe even hire a trainer, get some input, get an accountability partner. All these things that work in the physical realm, it's obvious parallel into the spiritual world. And that's why he uses it, because it's so clear. The spiritual disciplines um, are parallel to the physical disciplines. Now the purpose of training yourself <coughs> is for godliness. You've got to be careful here. A lot of people train themselves in spirituality for the approval of men because I look spiritual or because it's, it makes me feel good to know that I can check off that I read my Bible every day because that's you know performance mentality. We, we tend to get legalistic about this. For some reason, it doesn't happen as much in the area of sports or other things where discipline is, is praised and prized. But for some reason, probably has something to do with our flesh and the devil, but um, when it comes to spirituality, we, we get so quickly into legalism <coughs> where we don't want a structure. Well, because structure is legalistic. No, it's not. can be. You've got to be careful that it's not. But structure isn't legalistic. No, no, no player, in a, no athlete would accuse his coach of being legalistic because they practice every day. That's silly. But yet we do that spiritually, and there's this resistance in us sometimes towards training ourselves in godliness, and it doesn't make sense. I do believe it is a lie from the devil. Don't believe it. Should you practice spiritual disciplines? Yes. Can it be legalistic? Yes. Does that give you an excuse not to practice? No. Don't fall into that trap. It's a common one. It's, it's easy for me personally to fall into. The purpose is not the approval of men. The purpose is not to win an argument. A lot of people study the Bible so that they can go prove the Bible. Well, you should study the Bible to know God. And, and yes, you should defend the faith, but learn the Bible for the purpose of godliness. That's why we train ourselves. And so, and it's not to earn something from God. A lot of people think, well, I read my Bible, I read my Bible every day, therefore God owes me blessings. And if I read my Bible, then God's going to give me what I want. 
that's, that's legalism. Don't do that. Don't fall into that trap either. So we want to be disciplined, and we've got to watch out for the ditch on either side. Um, legalism and laziness. The purpose is godliness. We've got to keep that focus in mind. Um, a way to describe godliness is totally consecrated to God. So you live your life, you want to be, you want to train yourself to live totally consecrated to God. Another way you could say it is, is to walk in the Spirit. Galatians uses that phrase, um, be, uh, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. That idea where when, you, you, when conflict comes upon you, you respond with love and patience instead of with anger. So that's, that's a, a practical outflow of, of training yourself for godliness. Maybe you, you see somebody refuting um, false teaching. You say, well, I want to do that. Well, it's through godliness. It's through training yourself to be able to do this. Totally consecrated to God um, in your mindset. Take the collapse, the potential collapse of the economy. Whether it's sooner or later, our economy can't continue the way it's going. I mean, debt just doesn't allow success underneath it. That's biblical. Um, so how do Christians live in a, a world where the economy is about to collapse? This way. You pursue godliness. And if the economy collapses, well, what do you do? You respond totally consecrated to God. And maybe you help your neighbor. Maybe you work hard. And maybe you, you discover ways to, to help people. Um, as, a, as a simple example, but we want to train, you have to train yourself. It doesn't just happen automatically. Generosity doesn't just, well, some people are, are gifted that way, but you've got to train yourself. Um, and so these spiritual disciplines, when I use the phrase spiritual disciplines, by the way, I mean things like reading the Bible and prayer and giving and fasting and maybe, maybe journaling, um, things like coming together on a Sunday morning and worshiping and, and small groups. And, and these kinds of spiritual disciplines um, are what I'm talking about when I talk about spiritual discipline. And the promise is life. Um, and if you read the text, it says, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. Um, and so spiritual disciplines, training in godliness, it carries with it a promise just like physical exercise carries with it a promise. That's why, you know, these workout programs, that's why they sell all their programs is because they show you before and after pictures. This program has a promise attached to it. If you do what it says, you'll look like that. Now, of course, you have to eat what they say to eat, and you have to do it every day and all those other things too. But, and they, also, they always say, your, your results may not be the same, but whatever. Um, this carries with it a promise as well. This physical world has promises if you follow their routine. Spiritual life has promises if you follow its teaching. And so what is the promise that, that godliness holds out in this life and in the life to come? And if you think about it, what is the promise that godliness gives, that promise that it promises, what is it that godliness promises and it is life itself, properly defined in the Bible. Now, the, the Bible talks about it this way. The promise of life is life. And I want to take um, some, a little detour into the teaching of Jesus and just to spend some time meditating, which is a spiritual discipline, on what it means that the promise of training yourself for godliness is life. What does that mean, life, that I can experience now and the life to come. And so I'm going to put some verses up here that talk about um, life 
from the Gospel of John. I just did a search on my computer. All the times the word life is used in John, there's a lot. I just picked a few. Um, that would be, you know, talking about a, a new year. Spend some time as a suggestion. Go through John. Read John and do a study of the word life in John. I haven't done this yet. I've thought about it a lot. But uh, there is treasure to be mined in John if you study the word life and that theme and trace it through. It's all throughout the book of John, over and over again. Every single time Jesus says, I am, you know, I am the bread of life, everyone relates to life in some way. It's in the immediate context itself. So there's something that John is doing there by emphasizing that Jesus is the life. I'm just going to briefly touch upon it to kind of motivate you. This is the motivation to, to the, or the promise. So why should I train myself to godliness? Well, this is why. Because of life that is held out in, in, in reward. It says, in him, talking about Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus says in John 5, 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So is this talking about physical life or spiritual life? Yeah, I think it's talking about life as we know it. What, is it. what does it mean to have life? Jesus said to them, this, this passage, John 6, um, I love this passage. It's the day after Jesus fed the 5,000, and then they come across the lake and they find Jesus, and they say, Jesus, give us more food. That, that feeding of the 5,000, that was pretty cool. Do it again. We love you. We want you to be our king because you give us what we want. And Jesus saw right through their selfishness. And how many times do we do this? We come to Jesus because he gives us stuff. And we, we follow the principles of the Bible for hard work, and we are rewarded financially. So, and we, we are respected in the eyes of men. And we, we do what Jesus says because he gives us stuff. If that's you, it's, it's us often, we've got to be careful. This passage in John speaks to, to that mentality. And Jesus sees right through it, and he calls them out big time. And he says, um, and so in the previous context, they're saying, Jesus, Jesus, give us more food. Um, you know, give us more bread. And Jesus says, he's basically saying, look, you guys got it all wrong. I am the bread of life. You're, you're coming to me for the stuff that I give you. You're trying to find satisfaction in the stuff of this world. And you're missing the point. I am the bread of life. Now, if you want bread of the approval of men, this is how you do it. I mean, it's pretty easy to do. If you want to find satisfaction in the stuff of this world and your hobbies and in your, your entertainments and your comforts, there's a way to do that. But if you want life, there's only one way to do that. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. There's bread of entertainment. There's bread of worldly success. There's bread of approval of men. There's bread of self-righteousness, but Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. If you go to the approval of men, you will keep hungering. It's not going to satisfy you. If you go to the idol of stuff, it's not going to satisfy. Only Jesus satisfies. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so what he's talking about when he says life, he's, uh, maybe another way to say it is the fullness of life or life the way God intended, or life um, in fullness of joy and experiencing um, reality the way that God designed. That's what he's talking about when, he, when Jesus talks about life in this context. And it's all throughout John. 
Later in that same passage, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now think about that. He says, if you believe, if you are believing, you have right now eternal life. He doesn't say if you believed once, then there will be a day when you have eternal life. That's a common teaching. I said a prayer once, so when I die, I'm going to have eternal life. That's not what Jesus said. He said, if you are believing right now, if you have a genuine faith that is alive and vibrant, whoever is believing has right now eternal life. What does that mean? I mean, if you think about that, that you ha- I have right now, if you're a believer, eternal life. That, there's something here. We're going to flush this out a little bit more as we go. But this is a present reality, this thing called eternal life. So this forever life, you can have it. You don't have to wait for it at some later point in your life. He says in John 8, um, again, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. They'll be able to see the path that leads to life. They won't be wandering in darkness and trying to find life and all these things that don't satisfy. The light will be turned on. And oh, there's life over there. All right, let's follow Jesus. He's the, the way to life. So he's the light of the world. He gives light to men, and he is the light of life. There's all sorts of lights that are competing. But Jesus says, I am the light of life. So again, training ourselves in godliness is this. It's the light turned on, and I want that, and this is how I get it. I want the life. How to get it is to train myself in godliness. And he says again in John 10.10, this is the context of Jesus being the good shepherd, where he says, I am the good shepherd. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so here Jesus is starting to fill out what he means by life. The abundant life, the fullness of life. You can experience all the realities that God wants you to experience and be full of him and full of life now. That's why Jesus came. Now, you've got to be careful here. A lot of people will, will redefine the abundant life. There's all sorts of false teachings in the church that, that surround this idea that Jesus wants you to be, what he meant here was that he wants you to be healthy in this life, and he wants you to be rich in this life and comfortable in this life. Now, he may bless you with those things, but that's not what he means here. He doesn't mean when he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He doesn't mean, I came and died on the cross so that they can live the American dream and have all the stuff they want. That's not what he meant. But that's a common teaching. We've got to be careful that we don't slip into that. What he's saying is, I came that they may have, that they may experience the fullness of life. Whether they have nothing, whether they lose it all in a hurricane, or whether tragedy strikes, They can have life because this life supersedes this world. And the stuff that we have, even if it's something eternal like a person, if we lose that, we can still have an abundant life. It may not be giddy and frivolous and lighthearted, but we will have a deep and abiding sense of fullness of joy that we can experience now. That's why Jesus came, to give life abundantly, or to the full. 
John 10, 28, same context. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So let me take a second just to focus on that second half there. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus, the good shepherd, has his sheep in his hand. I've heard people say, well, no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand, but you can jump out, <laughs> you know, talking about you know, losing their salvation. <laughs> really? Jesus is the good shepherd. He gave his life for the sheep. And you think you can wiggle your way out of the hand of Jesus? Do you know who he is? <laughs> really, you think you can wiggle out of the hand of Jesus? The point that Jesus is making here is no one can snatch you out of his hand. You are secure in him. Not because your faith is so strong, but because his hand is so strong. And that's our confidence. It's in his hand. And in this context, it actually talks about how and, and the Father's, um, and, and he is in the Father's hand. And so here's the hand of Jesus holding you, his sheep, that he died for and paid the price of your sinfulness and redeemed you and gave you a new heart. Here's Jesus holding you tight. Here's the Father holding him tight, and you think you can wiggle out. <laughs> no, you are secure in his hand. Um, if, if, you, if you believe that you can outsin God's grace, you don't understand God's grace. You don't understand the power of the hand of Jesus or the power of the hand of the Father. And I, I would encourage you, as you train yourself for godliness, study this concept of your security in Christ. And again, not because of, of you or your faith, but it's because of God and his strength and his faithfulness. In the context of Lazarus dying, Lazarus just died, good friend of Jesus. Jesus, if you read the context, it says he purposefully waited for four days. On purpose, he waited till Lazarus was dead and very dead to prove to everybody his point that he was about to make. And it actually says that he did this because he loved Lazarus. He let him die. Interesting take on suffering. But because he loved Lazarus, he let him die. Four days later, he goes down there. And you know, Martha's like, hey, Jesus, you know, thank you for coming. You could have saved his life. You could, have, you could have healed him. And Jesus says, you know, he will rise again. Martha says, I know, I know. I know he'll rise again. At the resurrection, in the end, and Jesus says in that context, you misunderstand. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And, who, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The question goes to her. She said, yeah, I believe it. But she didn't get it. The question goes to you. Do you believe this? <laughs> really? Do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life today. That you don't need to wait until the, resur until the resurrection to experience this life. That's what Martha was thinking. Well, yeah, yeah, Lazarus, he's going to experience life again in the end when you know, everything's made right. No, Jesus said, no, you missed the point. I'm the resurrection and the life now. You can experience the resurrection life now. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, about living in light of the resurrection. Now, it's a present reality. Do you believe this? If you believe this, you will train yourself in godliness because godliness has a promise that you can experience this life that we're talking about up here today, this day, not just today, you know, someday. Today as in this Sunday, December 30th, 2012. You, do you believe this? That's a question to me, to you. Do we believe this as a church, as individuals? It's a good question, a really good question. John 14, 6, a very uh, familiar verse to many. Thomas Asked Jesus, you know, Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. How can you say, you know, we know the way? And Jesus, you got to love his patience. He says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. He's talking about going to the Father. <clears throat> and he, he's, he's talking about this life again. I am that way. I am the truth. You do know the way. You do know the life. You can experience this life now. Um, and Jesus here, he crystallizes what I've been talking about the last few minutes. He crystallizes it here most of all. Now, this is John 17. We've talked about, we've kind of done a, a, a quick skim through of, of life in John. Now, here it is again in John 17. Um, this is the night before Jesus died, after teaching the disciples a lot about, about uh, the Holy Spirit and about life in God. Um, he prays for them. A whole chapter. John 17 is a rich chapter. There is so much depth. You see right into the heart of Jesus and his relationship with the Father. But he says, um, so after Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. He defines it for us. What has he been talking about for 17 chapters, 16 chapters? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what is eternal life? It's this. It's knowing God. It's fullness of the life of God. It's walking with God. It's knowing God so well and being so confident in his faithfulness, in your relationship with him, the economy collapses, if morality collapses around us, we are experiencing life because we know God. And we know how to live. And we know how to respond to all these tragedies and, and wickednesses and calamities and all this stuff because we are living. And we're surrounded by a bunch of spiritually dead people and, and spiritually weak people. But we can have life and we can know how to live if you train yourself for godliness, because godliness has a promise attached to it, and that promise is life. Now, I want to just take a minute to ward off a false teaching. Some people actually teach that you earn the life through godliness. I'm not saying that. It could be misunderstood that way. I'm not saying in order to earn from God this thing called life, you have to practice spiritual disciplines, and you have to walk this path towards making yourself more righteous so that one day God will look at you and say, you're righteous enough. You can come to heaven now. That's a false teaching, and it? it's a pretty common false teaching. So you don't earn the life through godliness. You, you uh, well, it, and it says it in John 10, uh, or John 20. So it's in the context of life in John. I'm not making this up. Jesus said, these are, or John said, these are written, talking about all that he wrote, 19 and 20 chapters before, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You get life by believing. Now, you have to know who Jesus is, so there's some doctrine and teaching. You have to know what true faith is, so there's some teaching and doctrine behind this believing. But to get the life, to earn the life, which you can't do, but to receive the life... You believe, and that's it. That's all you do. You believe in Jesus. Now, the word believe means a lot, and the word Jesus means a lot. But the simple side of the complexity is all you do to get this life is believe in Jesus. Believe what Jesus said. Believe who he is. Believe that he is the bread of life, that he alone will satisfy. 
believe all the other things the Bible says about Jesus. So there's content to that belief. But if you believe biblically, you will have life in his name. My point this morning is that you experience the life through godliness. Jesus bought you this gift called life. And how many of us are living life to the full? Probably none of us, but probably some of us more than others. And that's just the way it is. And that's okay to some degree as long as we're all striving to experience this life more and to encourage each other. And that's what I'm doing right now is I'm encouraging you. Walk, take a step closer to that life and train yourself in godliness and, and experience this life through godliness, through complete consecration to God and surrender to him and walking in the spirit and practicing spiritual disciplines, that training, that exercise routine. Exercise yourself for godliness. Well, how do you do that? It's through practicing spiritual disciplines. The Bible talks about that. Um, that's how we grow. The word is the food upon which we grow. So the context is a wicked world. The command is train yourself. The purpose is godliness. And the promise is life, properly defined. And, um, and so I want to take now, kind of shift gears a little bit. And we spent some time meditating, which is a spiritual discipline, on life. I want to take it back a couple and spend some time thinking about train yourself talk about some spiritual disciplines and, and try to motivate you as we look towards this new year to set a resolve in your heart. Yeah, I, I want that. I want to experience that life. How do I do it? Train yourself. And, and the spiritual disciplines is the way that God has designed to do it. It's, it's, it's really, there, again, the simple side of complexity. If you want to be healthy physically, eat right and exercise. That's it. That's really it. And yet, billions of dollars are made each year because people don't eat right or exercise. So there's motivational speakers, there's workout programs, there's books, there's talk shows. Eating right and exercising would completely destroy an industry if we would just do it. But there's that whole issue of laziness, and well, dessert tastes better than vegetables, usually. And there's these obstacles. And so that's why, you know, we, we do need advice and help and support. And, I, you know, I need maybe to read a book on self-control. or Those things are okay. I'm not trying to bash those. But it really comes down to eat right and exercise. So spiritually, <laughs> eat right and exercise. That's really all that, you know, that's all I'm talking about. Read the Bible and pray and do these disciplines and, and love each other. Exercise, you know, live out your faith and love your neighbor and love each other and encourage Eat right and exercise. That's it. The simple side. Now, there's laziness and, you know, stuff of this world is often um, attractive and we get distracted. And so we need messages like this to encourage ourselves. But try to, to, to keep hold of the simple side as we talk a little bit about the complexity of spiritual disciplines. Now, spiritual disciplines um, are God-given means to make you more holy. It's the path he has given us to follow. Um, there's a book, this was actually the book of the month, um, called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Um, a lot of what I say actually comes out of this book. If you haven't read it yet, I, I highly recommend it. Um, I, th there's not enough, I can't say enough about this in one message, but he says a lot more. So I, I commend this book to you. A lot of you have it. I think we might have sold out of our copies, but yeah, you can check at the bookstore. You can buy it yourself online. Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. 
Um, and he, he lists a few, but there's more. Bible intake, which includes hearing the Word of God preached, includes reading, includes Bible studies, um, listening to sermons, reading books, um, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship or giving, um, fasting, silence and solitude, etc. Um, those are just some. There's more. Um, but this is how God, if you read the Bible, this is how he has told us to grow. So if we want that life, this is how you do it. Just like if you want to be healthy, well, this is how you do it. Eat, right, and exercise. So here's the eat, right, and exercise spiritually. And the second point, practicing the spiritual disciplines puts you in the path of God's grace. So Bartimaeus, for example, he's blind. He's sitting on the side of the road. He's on the path where Jesus is walking down this path. And he's there on that path. And he cries out to Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me. He's in the path, and he does what the Bible says in asking, and he receives grace because God likes to give grace. And so when we do the spiritual disciplines, we have to remember that it's grace. If you sit down and read your Bible, it is God giving you the grace and the discipline to do that. You're not earning anything from God. He's giving you a gift called discipline. If you get something out of his word, that day, which you should, because there's a lot there, he's giving you that gift. And so don't think you're earning something from God. He's giving you the gift of discipline. Um, think of Zacchaeus, right? He's a short guy. Here Jesus comes down the path, but he can't see Jesus. He really wants to see Jesus. So what does he do? He puts himself in a place, climbing up the tree, where now he can see Jesus. He wants to, to see Jesus, to hear what he has to say, and he puts himself in the path. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about spiritual disciplines. So the path to godliness is doing this. That's it. The path to godliness. All right, here's the simple side. Open your Bible and read it. Now, there's more to it than that, but that's the basics. You just read the Bible. That's, that's the most basic spiritual discipline. And like Zacchaeus climbing the tree, you opening your Bible, I can see Jesus. That's why you climb the tree. That's why you take the time to open the word, because I want to see Jesus, just like Zacchaeus. And hearing the word of Jesus promoted, uh, prompted faith and a response in Zacchaeus. That's what we're looking for. That's the picture of what we're trying to do with spiritual disciplines. We're, ju we're just climbing the tree. We just want to see Jesus. So when you practice spiritual disciplines, when you open your Bible, um, keep that in mind. Climbing the tree did nothing for Zacchaeus in and of itself. But it enabled him to do something else that he wanted to do. So practicing the spiritual disciplines enables you to see Jesus. It helps you climb the tree so that you can see. And then God's grace will flow to you. It's putting you in the path of God's grace. It's, it's, it's submitting yourself to a coach physically who will then train you for physical health. It's the same parallel. It's like eating food and drinking water. Now, is that legalistic? You know, it can be, and we got to be careful of legalism, but don't buy the lie that being spiritually disciplined, you're being legalistic. That's just not true. That's a lie that a lot of us believe. You know, no player thinks his coach is being legalistic just because they have to practice a couple hours a day. That's how you do it. That's just how you do it. It's just common sense. So let's apply some common sense to the spiritual disciplines and, and help, and maybe that will help keep them from being legalistic. Now, um, my hope is that after hearing so far what I've said, there will be a lot of people in this room who say, okay, I want to be more disciplined. 
I have a desire this year to be more disciplined. But desire without discipline leads to defeat. And this is true, again, with everything that I've said so far, with sports, with academics, with health. Okay, I want to be healthy, but you lack the discipline. You're going to lead to defeat. This is where a lot of us are um, over and over again. So I want to maybe give some advice to help get out of this rut. Um, Think of the gas in the car. I mean, you can only say, I don't have time to put the gas in the car so many times. It's, it's, you're going to run out of gas. Do you have time to walk to the gas station and hope they have a gas can and then walk back to your car? Do you have that time? No. So you better take the time to fill up the gas. You always have time for what is most important to you. I do believe there are no exceptions to that. Okay, maybe rare exceptions. But generally speaking, you always make the time for what is most important. You do. You've got to be honest with yourself. And so that desire, ask God to ramp up that desire so that you will be disciplined to lead to victory. Um, discipline without delight leads to disaster. Think of the kid who's practicing the piano. Their parents are making them. They're forcing them to be disciplined. They hate it. They grow up and they never want to touch the piano again. <laughs> That's disastrous. There's ways to help people in the midst of discipline to delight in the discipline. Maybe introduce them to people who are great at playing the piano and, and show them, you can do this. This is beautiful and, and motivate them. There are ways. There are strategies. Um, in the Bible, Jesus talks pretty harshly to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me that you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's disastrous, that people search the scripture and pride themselves in their knowledge yet refuse to come to Jesus. And so let that be a warning to you. When you search the scriptures, come to Jesus to have life. That's why we read. It's to come to Jesus to have life. And that's all over the place in the Bible, um, that idea where he's talking about uh, self-righteousness. Um, if you don't desire God, um, John Piper wrote, he, his main book is Desiring God. His, he wrote a book some years later titled, What If I... Uh, when I don't desire God. I have actually a DVD here. If you want to borrow it, you can come borrow it from me. I think we have this book in our bookstore, When I Don't Desire God. Because if you're, if you're honest, a lot of us, we don't desire God as much as we want. But we want to desire God. But you got, it's, it's okay to ask yourself, if, you're, if you don't desire God, that's, there's reason to ask yourself if your salvation is genuine, if your faith is real, if God has changed your heart. Um, the answer may be no. Or the answer may be, Yes, I really do want to desire God, but I'm just so distracted and I need help. And that's okay. That's where a lot of us, probably most of us, live. But I would warn you, don't just do it. Just do it is practical atheism. Don't just do it. Because if you think by sheer willpower that doing what you don't want to do will make you holy, it won't. It'll make you self-righteous. So don't just do it. Um, and again, this comes from... Um, John Piper in his book, Desiring God on Worship, it's the same context. Sometimes you come to worship, you, you don't feel like singing. Same thing is true when you sit down to the Word, you don't feel like reading. Here's some advice that Piper gives. Um, he says, confess that you're in sin. If you don't feel like worshiping God, there's something wrong with you. I mean, honestly, something's wrong with your heart. You're sick. You need to confess that it's sin. Probably every morning you wake up, you need to confess, God, my heart does not feel towards you the way that it should. So confess that it's sin, 
and already you're not just doing it, but make yourself do it. So you're not just doing it anymore because you've already got a step before the just. So you're doing it, but you're doing it with a heart of confession. You're doing it while asking God to give you the joy. So you're not just doing it. Don't ever just do a spiritual discipline because it's the right thing to do. Be careful with that. You're going to harden your heart real quick. Do it, but before you do it, confess that you're in sin and ask God to give you joy. And trust God. I should have put a fourth point there. Trust God. He wants you to experience this, this life. And so trust God. Confess that, it's, that you're in sin, your heart is distracted. Make yourself do it, but make yourself do it while asking God to give you the joy. Um, an acronym, again, that Piper came up with. He's very helpful on this whole idea about desiring God. It's, it's his, what he's devoted his life to. <clears throat> so I use him a lot in this context. Pray these prayers. This, he says he does this every day. Pray this prayer before you get into the word. Incline my heart to your testimonies. My heart is inclined towards selfish gain or just hobbies or distractions or work or life. or you know, the, Incline my heart. Bend my heart, God, towards your word. Um, open my eyes. When I read your word, I want to see you. All right, there's Zacchaeus climbing through. I want to see Jesus. So God, help me to see. You're dependent upon God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. My heart is so divided. God, unite my heart to fear your name. I want to see you. I want to experience the fullness of life that is in you. Satisfy us or satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. I want to be filled with joy. I want to rejoice and be glad every day. And so this is a, just a little helpful tool to put in your, in your spiritual discipline toolbox. You can do this. Every day you can do this. God, help me. My heart is so far from you. Help me to experience this life. Um, and here's another alternative. Discipline without direction leads to drudgery. If you don't see the goal in mind, think of the kid playing the piano. If they don't ever see what they, what they could become, they're not going to want to do it. Um, and so keeping the goal in mind spiritually helps. Um, it, it helps. You know, I will be able to respond to conflict with grace and humility. I will be able to have confidence and trust in God when the economy collapses. I can, I can help my neighbor. I can, you know, all these grand Christian things comes through discipline. And so keep that goal in mind. And different ways of saying the same thing. Um, and then there's practical advice. Read, meditate, and pray together. Now, I wanted to spend a whole lot more time talking about this, but, but I'm out of time. But the secret, if you know the story of George Mueller, he was the, the, the prayer warrior. He, he, he started an orphanage to prove that God answers prayer. Yes, he loved the children, but his main goal was to prove that God answers prayer. And so he set out to never ask for one dime from anybody. And this orphanage was funded. Millions of dollars came through never asking for money, only praying. And you read his stories, my goodness, God answered prayer. And it is just a faith-building exercise. It could be a spiritual discipline to read autobiography or biographies. But he, he had a hard time praying. He did not know how to pray well. He said before he figured out this secret, um, he would get up and he'd try to pray, and sometimes a half hour would go by, and he just, didn't, he just couldn't get into prayer. But he, he discovered something. After, you know, a little prayer, like, you know, the IOUs thing of, of asking God to bless your time in the Word, he would read the Word, then he would meditate on it, and out of the meditation on the Word, prayer just kind of flowed out. It was, it was a package deal. It's not three different things. Okay, now I'm going to read, now I'm going to meditate, now I'm going to pray. Um, it's, it's a package deal. 
and, and he learned, after this, he learned he never had problems praying again. And I would just encourage you, um, again, there's more about that in here. Um, you could talk about it more amongst your friends, maybe at, at lunch, but meditate on the word. Here's a bunch of quotes from English Puritans, but we don't have time for those. <laughs> they were masters at, at meditation and, and reading the word. Um, memorize scripture. Maybe, our, maybe we need to come together and, and get a scripture memorizing program as a church so we can encourage each other. Read through the Bible. Um, on our, our church's Facebook page, um, I just posted a link to an article where it lists dozens of different read through the Bible in a year programs, um, you know, different, starting in different places in the Bible, all sorts of encouragements and whatnot. I would encourage you, go there today. Go to the website, uh, the Facebook page on our website, our Facebook page, and go to the link, and there's all sorts of plans and programs and structure. Now, you can make it legalistic, but don't. Use that structure as a guide and as a tool, just like a coach would give a structure to their players, and, and let it be a grace of God. And I did some math, and if my math is right, if you read 12 minutes a day, you could read the Bible in a year. So that's seven days a week. If you only read six days a week, that's 14 minutes a day. Or maybe only five days a week, 16 and a half minutes a day. If you want to read through the Bible in two years, cut each of those times in half. You could read the Bible in two years if you read six minutes a day. Now you think, well, why don't we do that? Well, we've got all sorts of excuses. But when you put it like this, it's like, really? I, I think I could do that. Now, I'm not trying to be a, minimal, a minimalist, but think about it. You set out, okay, I'm going to read the Bible in two years. So I'm going to read six minutes a day. That's, that's a reasonable goal. I'm going to read six minutes a day, and I'm going to spend four minutes meditating on what I read and maybe you know, pray a few minutes. So 15 minutes of devotion time. And I do believe that's minimum. I, I guarantee you George Mueller didn't spend 15 minutes in devotions. But it's a start. It's a place to start. And maybe after a while, that 15 minutes will turn into 30 or an hour. Or, or maybe you'll set aside some time on the weekends to get in the word more. But Start with something, and don't get legalistic. Don't think you have to follow this program, but this could be a structure that could help you in your journey. Um, get an accountability partner. If you fail to plan, plan to fail. It's just a truism. And I would encourage you, today, maybe at lunch, talk about it with your family. What's one thing that we can do to increase our practice of the spiritual disciplines? If you, if you are... Mr. or Miss Discipline, and you, you've got this, and this is all easy for you. That's great. Please come and talk to me because I need some help. But if you're, if you're in tune with spiritual discipline, that's great. Add a spiritual discipline to your regimen. Maybe do you fast? Do you, you know, maybe there, maybe there could be something that you could add to that. Or if you don't do any <laughs> spiritual discipline other than coming to church and maybe a Bible study, you know, maybe do one of these read through the Bible programs. Just do something new this year um, to promote godliness in your life so that you can have life, more of God. That's all. Again, don't let it be legalistic. Just, just desire to experience God. So here's putting it all together. Desire plus discipline plus delight plus direction <laughs> equals discipleship. That's really all it is. Eat, right, and exercise. Again, the simple side, right? Eat, right, and exercise. That's it. Discipleship. All these things put together is what we're talking about when we say to grow in godliness or to experience the fullness of life, like I talked about already. Again, Jesus, talking about 
life. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, remains in me, connected to me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How do you stay attached to Jesus? It's through the spiritual disciplines. It's through get, It's through doing this with the right heart and the right motive and all those things that I talked about. So I would just challenge you, encourage you. I put myself at the front of the line. You know, there's ups and downs in one's spiritual journey of, of how well they practice the spiritual disciplines. I'm at a point about right here. And so maybe this, um, as, as, my, as a convicted in my own heart, as, as I stand before you, needing to, to put into practice what I hear, do one thing to help you stay connected to Jesus better. Because apart from you, uh, apart from Jesus, all those things that you do, if you think about it, they're nothing. Why are you doing them? You're wasting your time. <laughs> they're nothing. So stay connected to Jesus because apart from him, you can do nothing. And so I do leave you again with a question. One thing you're going to do to increase your training in godliness this year. I listed a few options. Pick one, maybe two, if you want. Maybe you could add meditation and prayer to your reading so that you're not just, just reading. Um, again, like I said, check the Facebook page. Get one of those Read Through the Bible plans. Maybe start a memory program. Make a plan. And, and I'm telling you, if you don't make a plan today, your chances of making a plan tomorrow are far less. <laughs> so make the plan today. Talk about it at lunch. That's my, my challenge to, the, to you today. What can you do? Talk about it as a family. Talk about it with your friends. What can you do today to increase your training regimen? Because we want life. And don't forget about the goal. We want life. So um, Nathan is going to come up, and we're going to close with a, a song. Um, let me pray to close off the, this time. Dear Father, I thank you for your word, and I do pray that you would help us, to help me to put into practice what was said, that we would train ourselves for the purpose of godliness so that we could experience the life that is promised. Help us to do one thing today that will help us to live more full in you this year. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.